Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today we're taking you through the best bits of The Catalyst by Jonah Berger. How to change anyone's mind. We've spoken a lot about personal change, you know, how do you change things within yourself. This book's more about how do you change other people because pretty much everyone has something they want to change in someone else. Salespeople want to change their prospects' minds. Marketers want to change purchasing decisions. Employees want to change their bosses. Bosses want to change their employees. Parents want to change their kids' behavior. Startups want to change industries. Nonprofits want to change the world. But change is hard. Man, change is, is super hard. We've all tried to do it, changing other people, and man, it's almost an impossible task. If you think about our, our old mate, uh, Isaac Newton, and how he noted how an object sort of tends to stay in motion while an object at rest tends to stay at rest. It's absolutely true when it comes to the laws of physics, but also the laws of just um, getting influence out there and changing other people. Just like the, the moons and the comets, we're really dictated by inertia. We always do what we've always done. You know, Rather than thinking about you know, which political candidate best represents our values at this coming election, we just kind of probably vote for the same person we voted for last time. Rather than starting afresh, thinking about which projects deserves our attention, we kind of just keep doing the same projects we've always been doing. Rather than rebalancing financial portfolios, we kind of just let things run as they are. Yeah, so when we're trying to change the minds of other people and overcome inertia, the tendency is to push. So if you've got an employee who works under you or something and you're trying them to get them to do something, you're probably just going to push. Or if you're trying to convince someone to do things your way, um, just more pushing. It's like you're going against a boulder as hard as you possibly can. But luckily, we've got a book like this where you can look at it in a more nuanced way and uh, be a bit more strategic how to make people change. Yeah, we think that pushing harder will do the trick. More information, more facts, more figures, more reasons, more arguments. If we just add a little bit more force, people are eventually going to change because they're going to realize there's all these reasons they should change. And if we just push, 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 they will. But normally that kind of backfires. It's not like we think people are marbles. If we push them hard enough, they're going to go where we want them to. But people are different. If we push them too much, eventually they'll push back. Yeah. And they will, then change becomes even harder. Yeah. Well, sometimes you buckle, I think, if someone's pushing you. But a lot of the time you go the other, it does the absolute opposite, uh, as we're going to learn a bit later in this book. So to answer this question of how to get it done or a better way to get it done, uh, we can look at a different domain entirely, and that's chemistry. Because if left for thousands or millions of years, things do change themselves, don't they? You get carbon that gets turned into diamonds or dead algae and plankton turn into oil. Um, and for these reactions to occur, molecules break down the bonds between the atoms and form new ones. But that's the thing. It, takes a, it, it happens. <laughs> it takes, it takes a, a million. We probably don't have a million years. We're dead <laughs> in 100 years. <laughs> that's right. And yeah, so we want to move things a bit quicker than that. So then chemists found there was these uh, cool little things that they realized actually make things happen a lot quicker. And these heroes of the chemical world, um, they were applied to things like cleaning the exhaust in your car, cleaning the grime off your contact lenses, turning plastics into bike helmets. Uh, there were the substances that sped up the change. They sped up the breaking down and reassembling of atoms so that it wasn't millions of years. Sometimes it was you know, just years or sometimes seconds. Yeah, that's it. So it sped things up and used less energy. That's what we want to be doing. Mm. Sounds like a good that's, thing that yeah, we yeah. want to be uh, tucking just into push, push, push. and sitting there for a million years. So these substances, of course, are called catalysts as, uh, as per the title of the book. That's right. So these catalysts, they've revolutionized chemistry, generating all these Nobel Prize winners, keeping billions of people from starvation. They've spawned some of the greatest inventions of all time. But this underlying idea, how can we get things to change quicker with less effort, is pretty equally powerful in the social world as well. 
In 2018, Procter & Gamble created a new product they thought was going to take over the laundry market. I think this product's come up in different books with different stories. But rather than measuring out a liquid or a powder laundry detergent and risk getting too much or too little and getting gross, dirty hands, they created a perfect amount of detergent inside a little plastic wrapper. So you just chuck in one tablet and then you load a washing and your job is done. Kind of Big, makes sense. Like it's it's, good one. They do it for dishwashers. You get a little tablet, you pop it in. You think for washing machines... Why do you still have to pour stuff in or scoop it out or whatever? It makes sense. So they called it the Tide Pod. Uh, they invested $150 million in marketing because they thought, you know, we're going to get 30% of the laundry market, which is $6.5 billion a year in the US. I don't know where they got that 30% number. There's probably just someone on a whiteboard just put it up one day. But So it was a great idea. It was a great product. They had a big marketing budget. Uh, it worked really well in uh, washing machines. But the problem was people started eating them. Yeah. <laughs> just, Having a snack, <laughs> you're throwing your, your sandwich and your muesli bar and your Tide Pod and you're literally eating it for lunch for some people. So, it was this online trend and they called it um, the Tide Pod Challenge where your mates, they dared each other to eat one of these packets of chemicals. So, bloody <laughs> just dumb thing. There's a lot of dumb things going around. That's really dumb. Um, and this trend took over online. Yeah, there was a few of these... Um you know, these mock newspapers like the Batuta style in, in America, The Onion, like they did it as a joke and then people were like, let's actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually these viral videos started going everywhere of people trying to swallow down these bloody Tide Pods and gagging. Some people even started cooking them up, like frying them up to get a, <laughs> I don't know, get a, <laughs> I don't, that, was, that wasn't the four-hour chef, but uh, apparently it makes it just, you know, a little bit, little bit more tasty. Yeah. Well, yeah. And P&G obviously didn't like this, right? They've yeah. built this product, the bloke who put that number in the on the whiteboard for the making hundreds of million dollars. They didn't they weren't predicting this sort of thing. So they they went hard on a campaign to get people to stop doing it. They hired um Rob Grokonski, who must be a big dog over in the US. Gronkowski, Gonk, yeah. Big, the, the Gronk, Gronk man. The Gronk man they call him and you know, in a in an ad, him just waving his finger, No, 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 don't you cannot do this. Don't eat it. What the heck is going on, people? Use Tide Pods for washing, not eating. And uh <laughs> And Gronk just kept saying, no, 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 just telling him not to do it. No, 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 no. That's right. And then, you know, the Procter & Gamble put out this official tweet, you know, what should Tide Pods be used for? Doing laundry, nothing else. Eating Tide Pods is a bad idea. And you can just imagine big Gronk, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. And you think, you know, when Gronk tweets it out to 3 million of his followers, um, you know, that'd be it. People would stop eating. But of course, that's just when all hell broke loose. Yeah, so it went the opposite way. So within a week after the grunt was telling him no, everyone just said yes and uh, they were enticed <laughs> to do it. So it went up by 700%. Phenomenal marketing campaign. Maybe if they were doing game theory, acting like they weren't meant to do it, mm. I won't give them that benefit of the doubt. I think they stuffed up and were actually trying to stop it. But Tide Pods were went gangbusters. And in 2016, there were 39 cases of teenagers eating the laundry packets so it's over a full year. There was 39. But 12 days after the, the Gronk was saying no, 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 um, they'd already doubled that entire year. So they're up to about 80 in 12, 12 days. days. That's pretty... Obviously, there's, Tide's efforts to stop people from eating this stuff had clearly backfired. And now this Tide Pod Challenge, it might seem unusual. It might seem weird that people were doing this, especially doing it even more after they were told no, 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 no. But it's actually pretty common. You know, It's one specific example of a much broader phenomenon. They found that in... In court, when the judge said to the jurors, hey, disregard this, the lawyer wasn't allowed to say this, ignore this completely, turns out the jurors actually 
draw back to that much more heavily than if they weren't told to disregard it. Similarly, alcohol prevention messages lead to college drinking much more than if they didn't see those uh, non-alcohol messages. And then really just trying to persuade people that smoking is bad for their health often makes people smoke more in the future. Mm. Well, it's just a lot of human psychology when you're told not to do something. Sometimes mm. you're getting pushed and the actual opposite happens, like we are saying in the intro. And this is because as people... We do have a need for autonomy and freedom and we do need to feel like that our personal lives are in our control. Rather than being subject to the whims and authority of others, that we have to know that it was, everything is our choice in our lives. Whenever we feel like our choice and our freedom and our control is threatened or taken away from us, that's when people get upset. When someone tells us not to do something, especially you know, a big powerful authority says, don't do this, we feel like they're interfering with our autonomy. Often, we push back and we start doing it. And that's what he calls reactance. And this is the, the first of the big uh, sort of roadblocks we need to overcome as a catalyst. Yeah. So, reactance is an unpleasant state that occurs when you feel like your freedom is lost or threatened. So, if you're telling your teenagers, don't go out there and drink or don't do drugs or don't do this and don't do that, you're doing what the Gronk man did. You're actually mm. doing the absolute opposite here because of this phenomenon of reactance. So, let's just say if you want to get the people... Uh, in your work to speak up, the ones who don't um, speak up as, as much. If all of a sudden you get your HR department to make a new initiative saying that, hey, everyone needs to speak up more in meetings, we're going to have some quotas. You, Susie, you haven't spoken in three meetings over there. Um, you need to start speaking up six times per meeting. And uh, suddenly, the reactance of poor old Susie out there would be triggered and she probably doesn't want to speak up anymore. That's right. If she actually wanted to, maybe she would have. But as soon as there's like this official policy dictated by the you know HR department, all of a sudden, I reckon she'd just sit there tight-lipped and wouldn't say a word. I mean, for me, it was like I used to always... Uh, the peel and the vegetables would always go put them in the green bin mm. and then the council was like you know what people aren't doing this enough we're going to send a little small bin that you keep put all the veggie scraps in there and then take it out to the green bin when they did that i started doing it less <laughs> i used to do it a lot and yeah. then as soon as they're like no nah, put all your veggies in this one tiny little pot and then take it outside mm. stop doing it <laughs> well we've all got that feeling of reactants i think out of all these you're you're very very strong on this oh yeah um been oh, doing the podcast time. with you for, for so long, I realized, and especially writing the book because when I do anything <laughs> oh, yeah. that was instructional, like it was oh, co- yeah. when, it, when it ever went into that point, you'd do the opposite. Oh, big time. You'd, you'd, you'd I'd say, Astro, can you just do write these six in, in the next week or something? You're not writing them. <laughs> no. It'd be a month later, I'm like, all right. It's like <laughs> <laughs> big reactants. A lot of reactants going on there. But there's things we can do. So, um, it's things I can probably start doing on you, Asher. Mm. But then if you know that I'm doing these, then you probably have more <laughs> reactants. So, it doesn't really work like that. But firstly, as a catalyst, we need to be aware to just not trigger it. Step one. Yeah, definitely. You want to make change. And as a catalyst, if you're triggering reactants, that's game over. The change isn't going to happen. So, there's a few ways you can kind of uh, sneak your way through to try to get people to make the change that you want them to change without even realizing it. So, firstly, providing a menu. This is really good. So, it's one way to allow agency to is so you're letting them choose themselves but you're letting them choose in a, a narrow range of options that you actually put on the table and you invented. So, it's like if you go to an Italian um, restaurant, if you sat down and said, hey, you're eating spaghetti bolognese tonight, you'd say it's a pretty shit restaurant. <laughs> Even if it's phenomenal spaghetti bolognese, the best one you've ever had and you wanted spaghetti bolognese <laughs> that night. That's right. And it's a coincidence, you'd be pretty pissed off. 
Yeah, definitely. You'd want, it, the, you'd want the, the menu, right? <laughs> that's right. If they, they've obviously got things on the menu. They've got the, the lamb ragu, they've got the pumpkin ravioli, they've got the spinach cannelloni, but it's within a narrow frame that they've chosen. You can't just all of a sudden choose a lamb kebab or fish tacos or sweet and sour pork because they've given you this menu. You get to choose, but from a narrow range that they've provided. So that's kind of what we want to do. If we want people to change, we don't say, hey, go do this. You kind of say, hey, do you want to do A or B or C? And you've dictated A or B or C and they get to choose. So kind of everyone wins there. Another way to do it is highlight a gap. So sometimes there's a disconnect between someone's thoughts and their actions and there's a disparity between you know what they'd recommend someone else to do and what they're actually doing themselves. And you can just sort of highlight that gap. Definitely. I think if you told a, a, a smoker, you know, don't smoke, it's bad for your health, they're not going to change. But I reckon if their kid walked up to them you know, they they just turned 16 or 17 and they said, oh, hey, mom or hey, dad, oh, I'm thinking of taking up smoking. Can I borrow a cigarette? Mm-hmm. I reckon immediately they'd be like, no, smoking's bad for you. It's bad for your health. It's just one way of highlighting the gap. The kid didn't say, mom, what are you doing? That's really bad. But they kind of, you know, subtly highlighted the gap. Yeah, I like it. So that's highlighting the gap. And thirdly, which comes up all the time, of course, starting with understanding. If you're trying to... Um, to get someone to change their mind and you're, you're going for the push the push effect like the Tide Pods people telling them no, 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 no. Instead, you actually sit there and, and you're trying to understand them. Yeah, if you if the hostage negotiator goes in there and says, you know, let the hostages out or we're going to start shooting you, they're not going to let the hostages out. But apparently this one guy here, Greg uh, Vecchio, who was in the book, apparently he says, the first thing he says, hey, my name's Greg, are you okay? That was just his first thing. Obviously, he didn't go in strong, guns blazing. He was just trying to get on their side, build a bit of trust, build a bit of an understanding, and from there, they can start working together towards a solution. Then he probably starts letting out the menu. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's pretty good, Greg, if you read this book. So, at the end of the day, when it comes to uh, reactants, that's a big boulder that we're trying to push over. And uh, when people feel like someone is pushing or trying to convince them, you're actually going to push back and you're probably going to dig your heels in and start resisting. So to change minds, uh, we need to stop trying to persuade them and encourage them to persuade themselves. New things, they're often better. New phones are faster. They've got more storage. New services are probably more comprehensive and get better results. New management strategies are probably you know more current and more up-to-date and more with the times. More often than not, people probably should switch to the new thing but even though the new thing is technically better, people still cling to the old. They follow the same processes, maintain the same course of action that they've always followed. So this is the status quo bias and it's everywhere. People tend to seem to just eat the same foods they've always eaten, the same brands they've always bought. I mean, if we go to the pub and there's a new menu with all these fancy looking things, I'll probably get the menu and look for about four minutes and I'll order the parma <laughs> the just every anyway. time. There's That's no right. point even looking at the menu. So there's a status... and. And when every single time other people's food comes out and I'm like, shit, I should have got the lamb ragu with, with thingo, but I've just got a palmer. Yeah. Status quo by us, Astro. It is, mate. It is. And the thing is, once we're endowed with something, once we believe it's ours, once you believe that I'm Adam Jones, I always order palmers, we become attached to it and we value it more. You know, there's that famous mug study, just a plain and simple white mug. How much would you buy? People would say, oh, I'd buy it for probably three bucks. But then if you own it and they say, how much would you sell it for? You say, I'd probably sell it for seven bucks. So obviously, it's the same mug, but since it's yours and you own it, it becomes a lot higher. There was another story here that people had semifinals tickets in the US. They were willing to pay 200 bucks to get them. But if they already had them, they said, no, I wouldn't sell this for, for minimum two grand. Mm. So just that's probably the, the mug study on steroids. But you know that endowment, once it's yours, once you own it, you become so attached to it and you overvalue it as a result. 
What happens all the time in sports, if you think about trade periods, it's pretty much a, uh, it could be a positive sum game. Every single trade, you've got mm. a player that they need and they've got a player that you need. So technically, there should be a lot of trades out there. But if you think about the endowment effect, it sort of boils down to probably one trade per team per year or whatever because mm. everyone just overvalues what they've got and the other team overvalues what they've got. Yeah. There's probably so much of rationality in, in those trades. And if that was removed, then you'd probably see a lot more flowing of players. Yeah, totally. And then when you tie in loss aversion as well, we know from Big Carnerman that you know losses weigh a lot heavier on us than potential gains. So normally the upside needs to be at least you know two or three times as good to enable someone to switch. And there's also the switching costs. If you think, oh, you know, if I change over to this new program, I'm going to have to learn how to use it. All that time that I spent learning the old one was wasted. All my files are going to be wasted. So there's all these reasons not to change. But the problem is there's also a hell of a lot of costs with sticking to the same thing. If you're sticking to the old crappy version instead of upgrading to the newer version, which might be faster, it might be better, it might be easier, even though it seems at the time you're not going through that loss aversion, you're not going through those switching costs, over time, the net result is you're going to be a hell of a lot worse off because you stuck with the crappy option losing every day. Yeah, that's it. So if you're using the status quo version right now, whatever it might be, it might you know, over a day or two, it might seem not like a big expense or a big cost to it. But if you actually do it over time, it's very different. And this is what the solution is. We need to be able to surface the cost of inaction, of staying with the status quo. And then over time, what is the cost of sticking there? And actually, what is the difference if you made the switch now? Because a lot of us, we don't naturally probably think about that. Yeah, there was one example in the book about a rich uh, old farmer who had a, a shitload of cash savings. And he had an investment manager and the woman was saying, you know, you're just sitting on this cash. You're making like, you know, half a percent interest a year. If we just took some of this and put it into stocks, you know, you could make eight, nine, ten percent a year. Mm. And he was like, no, nah, no, nah, it's too risky. Stocks could go up. They could go down. It's too much of a risk. So then what she started doing was every time that they met, she'd say, oh, you know, here's the difference. If you had have, uh, put your money in stocks the last time, then now you would have been up 150 bucks. And then the next meeting, he'd call a month later, she'd say, oh, if you had to put that money in stocks way back then, you would have been up 350 bucks. And eventually he was like, oh, that's not that much. But you know, six months later, eight months later, 12 months later, eventually she's like, oh, you could have been up four and a half grand by this mm. point. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah. So by servicing that cost of inaction, by showing that sticking to the status quo, yes, it's the easy path, but you're actually losing out in the long run. Well, there's another advertising campaign that does this really well. What's the um, compare the pair? Mm. So you're in Australia, you'll know this. Sorry for everyone who's not in Australia. What 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 is it? Who's the company? Uh, something industry super funds. Industry or super yeah. funds. They're obviously targeting people to to change and switch super funds. And what they do is have someone on an elevator, um, you know, some of the, and then they actually put the numbers of this person if they stay the same, and mm. then. The person, if they change, and then over time, what the difference is. So that's literally servicing the cost of inaction there, and uh, and getting people to change and make a move to something new. So obviously, change is costly, and the thing is, you have to bear those costs up front. You know, to buy the new product or switch over to learn the new software, or you know, take on the new service or the new agency. You got to teach them how things are done, or new initiatives take a long time to develop. All these costs are up front. You know, you have to pay for it before you get the results. But the thing is down the track, if you don't change, there's going to be a hell of a lot of costs that boil up that you're probably never going to see, but realize that there is a massive gap there. When we're trying to change minds, a lot of the time we think, hey, a lot more evidence is going to help. We think that giving people facts and figures and more information will encourage them to move. So that kid trying to convince the parent smoker, just giving them all the facts and the reason 
why it's bad for the health. You think all this evidence would actually help, but unfortunately, it doesn't happen like that. No, it doesn't happen at all. There's one example he's got in the book here about vaccines, MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella. Most people get their kids vaccinated against these. But of course, there are you know some of these ideas that this vaccine was then linked to kids developing autism. And so there's been a whole bunch of studies and researchers that found that, no, actually, this is not true. There's been a whole bunch of scientific papers about it. And then they did a study. They said, okay, let's take a group of parents and let's show them here's all these facts and figures and studies and research and all this stuff and see how it affects. You know, they asked them at the end, how likely uh, are you to give, you know, vaccinate a future child against this MMR stuff? And, you know, thinking, you know, did the truth help? Did exposure to all these scientific studies actually change people's minds at all? Yeah, well, you think it just pure objective truth would help, and it sort of did, and only for the people who are already f- slightly favourable towards vaccines. So the additional information, if they were sort of on the fence, to sort of push them over the line to get them, um, to get them there, reduce their misperceptions, and increase their intent really to vaccinate their kids and get off their ass and do it. But the ones who were less favourable, the ones who were already kind of against it, the exposure to all these different things actually backfired. The more information they got didn't actually move them towards getting uh, you know, more likely to be vaccinated. It actually moved them the other way. They're actually digging their heels in. Yeah. They realize that, oh, actually, there's more corrupt organizations than I ever thought were out there. All these scientists are corrupt. Yeah, well, there's, uh, there's, you don't have to look very hard for more modern examples than, than in the book, uh, not just in vaccines, but in a lot of things. Like, um, I was at the pub a couple of days ago, and I've never met a QAnon supporter. Weird thing for someone in Australia mm. to be a QAnon supporter, which is really US <laughs> phenomenon. But um, yeah, odd, odd dude, but I didn't get to chat to him about it, but he's like, bloody hell, mate, have you seen the, the doco? And he obviously has seen the doco and all that, but he just digs his heels in. There's no saving some people like that, right? So what the, uh, the theory is here, he talks about the region of rejection. If you think about selling a home, generally the home buyers kind of try to sneak in a little offer, you know, maybe 90% of the asking price, hoping to meet somewhere in the middle and, you know... If they offered 50%, they're just going to say Too no much. way. They're going to say no way. You need to be close enough to start the negotiations. Yeah, it happens all this Facebook marketplace, right? If you if your strategy is to buy something on marketplace, if you go too low, they're going to tell you F off and yeah. don't come back. So you need to yeah, get that point where it's just, just a little bit below. <laughs> That's right. And then to counteract this, the sellers, they probably add a little 5 or 10% on top, knowing that people are going to go you know, 10% below knowing that they're going to ask for less. Obviously, if they put 30% fat on top, people are going to look at it and think, this is a joke, no way, tell them they're dreaming. But if you just add that little 5% fat, you're close enough to start the negotiations again. So we can take this idea of price negotiations and and sort of apply to people's minds. Like too extreme, either way, doesn't really help. Um, So if you get someone in the negotiation table, you might not be able to get them to meet exactly halfway but at least you can pitch it in a in an area that is sort of closer to what your desired result is. Yeah, if you think of the gridiron field, there's two end zones, there's the hash marks every 10 yards. You got strongly opposed on one end, strongly support on the other end and indifferent in the middle. Everyone's at some point along this field. And the thing is if someone's at the you know the 20 yards from the left, they're close to strongly opposed. If you drop in an argument that's way on the other side of the field, they're just going to ignore it. They're going to ignore it completely. But if you, you know, if you can launch your punt and it lands, you know, five to ten yards just in front of them, they might edge up a little bit further towards your side. It's a pretty good strategy, isn't it? So if you go too hard, they're going to dig their heels in. So rather than if someone's got a totally different viewpoint than you, it's very silly coming on with your opposite end of mm. the argument, isn't it? It's, you got to find that what's the the region which is somewhat acceptable for them. 
Um, and to get them there, just like when you're bidding for a, uh, a wood heater on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> How did you go with that one? Uh, I did. So she listed it at 1500 I went to 1000 Um I thought that was probably in the lower end of the region of rejection and then she came up with 1200 So I thought I played it pretty okay. well. If That's I went out result. there with 600 or something. Yeah, no. Nah. She would have just ignored off. you. She wouldn't have replied at all. So it was probably at this, you probably want to be aiming at the very start of their... Um, what, not the region of rejection. What's the one before that? Region of acceptance. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. go with that. Yeah. So if you're landing in that acceptance zone, great, you're on board. You're going to loosen them up a little bit and you can shuffle it a little bit further to what your side is. Big bad Jonah. What did you call him before? Jonah Burger. You had a... We cut it. I, uh, <laughs> I started the app calling him Jonah, Jonah Cheeseburger Cheese and I was like, that, <laughs> that joke was, was that bad. I had, we to, needed. I had to get it. You, you wanted all evidence gone, but I brought it back up just so oh, you could... People would know how lame that joke. That was a pretty lame joke, Jonah was, Cheese. Especially to open an episode. <laughs> People listen to the podcast for the first time and hear that. No, no good. Howdy. Anyway, big Jonah Cheeseburger. He was going on a holiday to Miami. You know, he wanted to escape the winter, go somewhere warm. And he had two options when he was booking a hotel online. Hotel A was built about 15 years ago. All the rooms were pretty good, a little bit shit. But, you know, they're mostly like, you know, 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10. Um, hotel B... They had renovations done very recently and they were brand spanking new. They were done less than six months ago, but only half the rooms had been renovated and the other half were pretty dodgy uh, and they hadn't got to them yet. And so he said to you know, Hotel B, you know, can I, I want to book here, but can you give me one of the good rooms? I don't want the shit room. And they said, well, it's just availability, time, what time people check out, what time you get here to check in. And so he, he kind of had a choice. He had either the guaranteed 7 out of 10 or he had the coin flip of maybe a 10 out of 10, but maybe a 2 out of 10. You think you take the punt? I don't know. Or you take the punt and get lucky and go for that awesome room with that huge, awesome view, the best thing you've ever done. But it turns out, you know, as you might imagine, most people actually go for the predictable, safe option, mm. knowing exactly what they're going to get rather than a coin flip of something really good or really bad. That's right. I think there's probably done heaps of Kahneman studies about the you know, the chance. He tells about another one. There was a, a coin flip here for a money prize. You either had a guaranteed 30 bucks or... Now, you've got an 80% chance of winning 45 or a 20% chance of getting zero. Now, if you look at the math, the expected value of the 80% chance of getting 45, it's actually 36 bucks. So, you're like 15% better off. You may as well take the gamble. But it turns out almost everybody took the safe bet and just took the guaranteed 30 bucks in their pocket, even though it was mathematically the worst option. Yeah, so uncertainty is great for the status quo. But if there's any uncertainty involved, people stick with what they're already doing. So if you've got a um, someone's got the existing product in the status quo and you've got something new that is is clearly better than the other one, if there's just uncertainty, that won't do it. You need to actually convince them and, and reduce and just give them absolute certainty in what they're actually moving to, as our old mate uh, Tony Robbins would say. That's right. Any uncertainty, they're not going to change. And so there's a few solutions here of what uh, you know companies or organizations have done to overcome this uncertainty. You got like the the freemium model, you know, you've got the free version that people can try. It's a super low barrier to entry. And then if you want to upgrade to get the better features, then you can pay that little bit extra. You know, it's like, you know, Spotify, it's free. If you don't want the ads, pay a little bit, but you know what you're getting because you're already kind of in there. Yeah, I like the trialability one, right? Because it does a couple of things in the catalyst realm. So, because you're in one sense, you're reducing the um, uncertainty because they're actually having a shot at it, but they're also adding a bit of the endowment effect, aren't you? Mm. Because you've actually got them using it and then 
got a bit of a track record and then they're actually going to lose it if they don't pay. Definitely. Sana just got me recently on- um, Oh, did you pay for it? I ended up paying oh, for man, it. Oh, man, I went back to basic So, free. I did the time. I, I used, we've used Asana for what, yeah. four years now. Probably more, yeah. And I use it for something to get, use the timeline feature. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed the timeline feature <laughs> and I don't want to lose it. So, they got me. <laughs> they gotcha. Mate, when mine popped up and said free trial's over, I just said, take me back to basic. <laughs> That's because I never used the timeline feature. I was just still using the basic features anyway. Um, or another one is to make it reversible. Jonah and his partner, they want to go get a puppy and they went to a, a rescue dog shelter and they found this super cute one and they were going to get it. But then Jonah started saying, you know, what if what if the dog grows too big for his home? What if they're not there enough to take care of her? What happens when they travel for work? There's all these questions. But then smartly, the woman who was working at the dog shelter said, you know what? We've got this awesome program here. You can do it just like a free two-week trial. Take the dog home for two weeks and then you'll see how does it go in your home and for whatever reason, if your home's not set up properly, if the dog sucks, if you don't want a dog at all anymore, just bring it back, no questions asked. And I reckon you probably see the percentage of people who take a dog for a Oof. test drive for two weeks Oof. and then bring it back would be asymptote of zero oh, I reckon 100% unless it shits on your couch or something <laughs> I reckon even still you'd forgive it it was oh, a super cute I puppy I'd, I'd, I don't like <laughs> no, you got it they're definitely going to shit on your couch yeah you got to train it yeah but two weeks nah some dogs mate I, I won't say uh, I won't say whose dog but I did babysit a dog and it was a, mate, it was I a nightmare you've only ever babysat one dog so I don't think you're hiding anything <laughs> it was a nightmare it was an absolute nightmare mate, there was an interesting one Alison just uh, had uh, I think it was must have been Lululemon. Maybe it wasn't. Anyway, I'm giving a plug for Lululemon either way. They had a lifetime returns policy. Mm-hmm. They said if at any time you get a hole in your leggings, bring them back and we'll switch them for a better one. That's, That's really phenomenal. getting rid of all uncertainty there. Yeah. Well, a lot of people do it like money, I guess money back guarantees. Is that mm. always yeah. reducing all the uncertainty? Insight. Because you're a bit worried, what if I lose that thousand bucks on what I'm spending? But you get it back if you don't like the product. That's, That's right. Jonesy, mate, I've got a question for you. How do you feel about pine trees? Quite. That's a different <laughs> word because it's, um, I like them. I should be neutral, but I really like what them. Do you, what do you think about sans serif fonts? I'm very neutral on that. <laughs> very very neutral. different there. <laughs> There's um, a bunch of things that you're going to pretty be, you know, you're going to, maybe you have an idea or an opinion, but it's not going to be strongly held. If I said to you, Jonesy, sans serif fonts, they're a thing of the past. Go hardcore serif. Serif is the way to go. You probably probably take that. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't care less. Yeah, I couldn't right. care less about those things. Give me anything and I'm moving on. But some things aren't just a matter of opinion. Some things we've actually got really strongly held beliefs and we think these are uh, objectively right or wrong. And not surprisingly, trying to convince me to go with sans serif versus, um, I don't know, <laughs> it's about the only aerial or something like that. Uh, couldn't care less. But some things are very different and almost very hard to move someone on. That's right. Like, think about your favorite sports team. If I said, mate, the Saints are shit house, Max King is overrated, you should change and go for someone else. Go yeah. for the Gold Coast. Oh, you're not going to change, are you? No, <laughs> exactly. No, I've got a lot of corrobor- I've got a lot of evidence to, <laughs> to make the move, but I still love it. So, there you go. So, there's some things he calls pebbles, they're going to be easy to pick up and throw somewhere else, like Jonesy's opinions on fonts. Some things like boulders that all this pushing probably isn't going to get you to change your your favorite sports team. So knowing if something to somebody is a pebble or a boulder, then we've got to approach things very differently in how we change their minds. So the strategy is entirely different. So if you're facing a, a boulder like your sports team or something, 
most common response is just turn up the juice. So Ashe might be pushing harder and prodding and everything like that, moving around to a different angle, telling me I haven't won a flag in 60 years <laughs> and uh, Max King's um, goal-hitting percentage is close, <laughs> one of the worst in the AFL, all that sort of stuff. You think the persistence would pay off, but a lot of the time it's just obviously going to make things worse. So the, he's got an example here about uh, a pretty trivial example, but he talks about, you know, on a Monday morning, a colleague just comes in and says, you know, this brand new show dropped on Netflix. They said, I just watched the, the, the first episode, the pilot. Uh, it was incredible. The plot was gripping. The characters were top notch. The dialogue was sharp. They said, I absolutely love this. You're going to love this as well. So they put a little bit of weight on your seesaw to try to budge this, this boulder. And it, it's kind of like if your attitude was a pebble, then yeah, you'd probably go home and watch it. Um, but if your attitude was more boulder-like, you've got a lot of other shit to watch at the moment, it's probably that one instance is probably not enough to get you to budge. If then the colleague comes back the next day and they say, oh, episode two, it was even better. You know, it was just, it was next level. There's shit you would have never expected to happen. Then you might think this is a big budge, but because it's the same person telling you kind of the same thing, there's what he calls a translation problem. So there's a bit of a puzzle here, you know, because the co-worker loved the show, does that mean it's objectively great or did they just love the, the lead actor or do they you know, have a special thing for sitcoms but you're more of a rom-com type of person? Is it because they're saying it's awesome? Are you going to think it's awesome as, as well? Yeah, let's call her Susie. So let's say if she rolls in and says, if she's actually trying to convince you to enjoy the show, day three, four, five, you just I know you love it. <laughs> Susie not, loves it. That doesn't tell you much anymore. more. Not at all. But if Susie's genuinely trying to persuade you to go out there and watch your shows because it's a weird thing how we want people to watch our Netflix shows, isn't mm. it? It's something we actually really want. So it's worth um, <laughs> considering this. There are different ways you can go about it. So let's say if Susie said she loved it, but what if, you know, so Susie's this progressive 22-year-old, um, but she convinced George, who's this 57-year-old manager, then... The next day, George comes in. He goes, yeah, have you seen that Netflix show? You're like, hang on. We've got George on that end of the spectrum. We've got little Susie on the other end of the spectrum. It's a very different story on day two when you got George saying it rather Mm. than Susie again. That's right. Obviously, we want someone who's as close to us as possible, but in absence of having the perfect doppelganger, having all these sort of various different people that are sort of similar to us in that they work in the same field, but also different to us, maybe different ages, different genders, different interests. If there's more and more people from all different angles pushing this boulder, you're probably going to budge in it and you probably go and at least watch the first episode. So that's the idea of corroborating evidence. Just don't just give them the same sort. Give them a whole uh, variety, mm. um, diversity of recommendations, gender, different different science, different context, different everything. And then that's way to get a, a boulder to actually move across the line. I don't know what other corroborating evidence you got for my Saints one, but I'm sure if you you wouldn't have to dig too too hard to find it. <laughs> That's right. Moving boulders, uh, it's tough, but it's not impossible. So as catalyst, you need to solve that translation problem in that you need to find the right sources of corroborating evidence. Obviously, you going out there and just pushing, 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 it's not going to do the job. You need to kind of recruit the right different varied forms of evidence. And eventually, that boulder might start to move. Mate, Jonah Berger, I think he's a phenomenal writer, mm. uh, I thought. He's, we both love Influence, which is probably the same category as this book. You could, it wasn't Influence. Mate, Influence is Big Cialdini. What was his other one no, called? No, 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 no. I'm saying, I'm saying it's the same category oh, as, okay. as Influence. Oh, Cialdini. Gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get that one wrong. But <laughs> they're the same category. We did his, what was the other book of his we did? Um, 
Uh, the word of mouth one, whatever it's called. Yes. Um, what was it called? Far out. We should know that. It was, it was in, in our book. It was in our book. <laughs> it was in the shit they never tell you. Contagious. Contagious. I got lucky because I saw yeah. it just above your head on that bookshelf there. That's, oh, that's very lucky. <laughs> but he's, he's a phenomenal writer, very easy to read. And uh, he probably could be a bit more famous than he actually is, I'd say. Mm. I'd say compared to Cialdini, Cialdini sort of perhaps the first one there mm. and uh, stamped the ground in the territory. This one came later. Probably easy to read these ones and yeah. probably sit and, uh, and register in your brain a bit easier. Yeah, definitely. Um, and with this one, when we're trying to change other people, the problem is we often just think about ourselves, what's going to help us change, but we always forget to think about the most important part of change, which is the audience. So, you've got to ask, you know, not just who are they and what interests them, but why haven't they changed already? What are the kind of the barriers that are stopping them from changing? And then as a catalyst, it's your job to go out and, and find using these five different things, finding the reactance, the endowment, the distance, the uncertainty or the corroborating evidence as a catalyst, helping them change themselves. Mm-hmm.